Well, good morning, church. Uh, my name is Aaron Cotton, and I'm the family discipleship pastor uh, here at The Grove. Uh, and if you are tuning in uh, as a guest, I want to say welcome. It's uh, my honor to uh, open up the Word as we celebrate uh, Palm Sunday uh, this this morning. I'm actually going to be in Matthew chapter uh, 21. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and, uh, and open up there. Let me ask a question uh, this morning as we get going. Uh, do you guys remember when you uh, bought your first home? I don't know what your experience was like, uh, but my experience was a very long one. Uh, we went from house to house to home to home. I think we like were looking for the home of our dreams, uh, our first buy, for at least like a year or so. And do you remember walking into the home that you bought? And you remember uh, seeing the home? You remember being impressed by the home? You remember seeing the backyard or whatever like you had on your list that you needed or that you wanted and you desired and you saw it and you knew like this is the one. I remember our realtor actually told us that once you walk into your home for the first time, you'll just know kind of like like your wife or, or your husband, you'll just, it'll just click. And she was right, because when we walked into uh, our home, we just, we just knew. And one of the things on my list was actually I needed to have, not need, but I really wanted uh, to have a back porch. Uh, and when I saw that back porch, I knew that that was going to be my sacred space uh, to get my barbecuing on, uh, to sit outside while it's raining like it was yesterday. Uh, but after time, after I've lived in my home for a few years now, uh, it's become familiar. Uh, what, what's once in my back porch open where we can actually sit. Now a kid has been thrown in the mix, and there's little tykes that are everywhere. There's toys that are everywhere, and it's, it's taken up what was once a place of, uh, of peace uh, for me. And no, no longer do I enjoy that back porch. I actually loathe it when I see it. Because uh, it reminds me uh, that I no longer had what I once had, but also it's just familiar. And as I has been preparing this morning and, and preparing for Psalm Sunday, I, 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 Palm Sunday rather, I feel like that can be um, a temptation for us is, is the familiar. That we know the story. We, we, we know the Hosanna in the highest. We, we know we're probably going to sing some Hosanna song on Sunday morning. Uh, but I pray this morning that we would be reawakened uh, to the beauty um, of Jesus, because fam familiarity can, can rob us of all of the, what we were created for. We were created to be in awe of the Lord, and to, for that to be the sole motivator of our lives, that so we would be in wonder of Him, and that we would love Him, and we would pursue after Him and follow him. And so this morning, the, the title uh, is, is, Your King is Coming to You. Your King is coming wherever you are, wherever you sit. We know this relentless and good and worthy King is pursuing you relentlessly. And He, he has been. Your king, is, your king is coming. And we've seen this all throughout the Gospel of Matthew. We've seen God put on flesh, the angels the enemy in the wilderness. We've seen Jesus perform miracles. We've seen the lame start walking. We've seen the dead literally rise to life. We've seen the blind receive sight, as we see in Matthew chapter 20. And all the while, as Jesus is doing this, and Matthew is really good at pointing us to Old Testament prophecy, in Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6, it says that the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped and the, 
And then the lame man will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. What's Jesus doing as he performs miracles? As he does what our, our world can't even fathom is he is making a statement that he is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. He is the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 35, 5, and 6. And now we see in Matthew chapter 21, we see Jesus riding in on the Mount of Olives. Which, if you know anything about the Mount of Olives, Speaking of Old Testament prophecy, Zechariah chapter uh, 14 says that the Lord, this Messiah, this coming one, shall touch down. His feet shall hit the Mount of Olives, and it shall be split in two, according to Zechariah 14, 3 through 4. And it, it shall be so split as far as east is from the west. And so get the picture. The crowd is following Jesus. He's performed all these miracles. They're rejoicing. They're shouting. Jesus is on the Mount of Olives. Like, this is it, y'all. He's about to go in and do some work on Rome. We're about to be delivered. We're about to rejoice. Our enemy is going to be removed. It's about to be a heyday, and Jesus is our king. But this we also know about the Mount of Olives, is that Jesus himself would have to be split open to offer redemption the forgiveness of sins. Church, listen, you can't have physical deliverance without spiritual deliverance. deliverance. This, this is, is why the Mount of Olives is the place not only where Jesus was celebrated, but this is also the place where Jesus cried and wept and was broken before his disciples. Do you remember Gethsemane? Do we remember when Jesus is with the few and they're falling asleep on him? He's asking them to pray. He's alone. His friends have failed him. He's, a, he's, he's been betrayed. His sweat has become like drops of blood. He's, he's such an anguish. Why? Because our King Jesus, our suffering servant, came to identify with our sorrows and our hurt and our grief and our pain so he could be with us in ours. You see, the Mount of Olives is our hope. It's there on the Mount of Olives, Jesus said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Translation, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, Father, let's, let's go that route. But never the, nevertheless, I lay down my preference and I trust your will. And church, it's in the nevertheless. It's in the never, nevertheless, but that not my will, but your will be done. There lies our joy. The reason God takes us off the mountain of circumstantial happiness is to bring us into the valley of lasting joy. He takes away our preferences to give us deep, abiding joy of being with him in ways that we never would have been with him if we chosen so. It's in the not my will, but yours be done is where God draws all the more close, especially in this COVID-19 season that we find ourselves in. In this season of social distancing, God is not distancing himself, but is inviting us into a deeper communion with him. 
I know we don't have the freedom that we once had. I know we can't go to the local Chick-fil-A and dine in and watch our kids go berserk. I know we're not going to be able to graduate like we intended or like we wanted you to go to prom or to celebrate the birthday that we wish or be able to play in the playoffs like we wanted or go out on dates or go on vacation or even gather as a church or even celebrate Easter the way that we envisioned. But church... Look at me, but this I know to be true is that God does not waste this time. It is actually producing for us an eternal weight of glory, closing one dream to give birth to another better one. When we say, God, if you are willing, we ask that you remove this, this virus. But if not, if you so decide not to remove this season and this virus, not my will, but yours be done. It's in the not my will, but yours be done, churches, where we find our joy that's deep and abiding in this king who, who could remove the virus is the same powerful one who's going to sustain us and get us through this season. Our king is coming to you. He's working and he's willing and he's wooing us to himself so we can find our ultimate security and rest in him. To strip away everything else so we can find our everything in him. To detach our hands away from those things we so desperately are clinging on to so that we can cling to him. Your king is coming to you. And as he comes to you, church, it's in his presence there is fullness of joy. And at his right hand there are pleasures forever. More. The Mount of Olives is where he was celebrated. It's also where he cried, and that's where we find our hope. They're on that mount. It's on the Mount of Olives in this kingdom that is risky. Read with me Matthew chapter 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. When I was reading this uh, for myself uh, there in my office, I, I was chuckling because I find it uh, funny that the disciples go to this owner. It's not, uh, the dialogue's not here in this account, um, but actually in another gospel account, the owner comes out and says, hey, y'all, what are you doing? It's almost like as if someone came up to your driveway and uh, somehow was able to get in your car and it was like, hey, we, uh, we need this vehicle. And you're like, well, wait a second. That's like, that's my car. That's a prized possession, like a donkey or, or a colt or, or this, this, this figure, this animal is a prized possession in this day. And for someone to roll up on their property, ask for their possession, this prized possession, like that would, uh, that would, that would um, actually cause the owner to be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. But the reason why I was laughing is because all we see in the gospel account is, is the disciples say, which is what Jesus told them, is the Lord needs them. The Lord, the Lord needs this. It was almost like a password. Like, you know, you're a kid, you knock on the door, it's like, what's the password? And like, this is the, pa- the, Lord's need- the Lord needs them. And then it, all of a sudden the owner just releases this cult to the Lord, which I began to think like, about this mysterious, unnamed owner that Matthew doesn't even bring up, is willing to give over his possessions and give over his time and to give it over to the Lord for the sake of the kingdom. Let me ask you a question, church. Do we view our possessions 
in our time in the same way, as if they're lent for the master's disposal to do whatever pleases him. Jesus, you can have whatever extra I have laying around the house and those in, for those in need, but don't touch my savings account. Jesus, you, you can have my left, leftovers, but don't, don't touch what's there in the bank. Jesus, you can have what I watch on TV, but don't interfere with what I watch on my phone. Jesus, you can have my day, but let me do what I want to do at night. What precious possession are you so tightly holding on to that Jesus is inviting you right now to drop for the kingdom? Even as a time as this, as people are hoarding and collecting and building up walls of security, how can we be the church to be sent out? Not not losing our brain, not checking our brains at the door, not being wise. And I'm not saying that, but what I am saying is that the kingdom is risky because ultimately the king risked everything to come after us. Because it's, it's in this, and maybe this owner knew this prophecy, because the whole written word points to the living word. And it's for this reason the, these owners wholly give over to the king into his kingdom. Matthew continues to write in verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I love when Matthew writes, because he's like, y'all, don't miss it. Like, you can easily miss this, but there's some prophetic goodness in here. 500 years before Jesus even rolls into town on this donkey, it's fulfilling prophecy that was written long ago by this prophet of Zechariah of chapter 9, verse 9, right here in verse 5. It says, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, this is our title. Behold, look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Like Jesus above all things. I know you're fulfilling prophecy, but a donkey? Why would you choose a donkey? Because this king and his kingdom is not what we expect or what we do. It actually, this kingdom flips everything upside down puts his values on its head and it's beyond us this kingdom is beyond us but yet it is within reach because our king has come to us riding on a donkey if i was going to be king and i was going to be riding in if I was, this was going to be like my time i'm not choosing a donkey i'm choosing myself a clydesdale i want the biggest horse of all to be decked out palomino color light bay whatever like one of those two got all the armor on it. Like, that's what I would choose. I, I want to be riding in on that. So why does Jesus choose a donkey? Yes, to, to, to fulfill prophecy. But as actually, as I was talking to Lance this past week about just like why a donkey, and we began just to think about like when you actually sit on a donkey, you're, you're, you're a little bit lower. Not like you're a lot lower than you would be on a horse. And it's, if I were to be on a donkey, and y'all know if you know me, my big and self, my legs would be, would almost be dragging the ground. It, it would almost, it would be funny. It'd probably be a, a little too humorous for us to see myself on a donkey. Because when you're on a donkey, you're, you're on, a, but when you're on a horse, you have to look up. And what I began to think about is that Jesus rides in on this donkey to demonstrate to us that, that he has come, that God has put on flesh and made himself available to us. He doesn't come on a war horse. That's going to come later in Revelation chapter 19 when he comes to tread the winepress of the wrath and fury of God Almighty. But for now, he comes in on a donkey to make himself available. 
to share his face with us, to be available to us. And he chooses this donkey because this, this donkey is a representation of peace. He's come to give us peace. It's interesting, if you actually go look at Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, you'll see that, that the words righteous and just, having salvation is he, is removed when Matthew quotes it. Matthew removes that intentionally because Jesus' triumphal march here to Jerusalem is one of peace, and it's with the anticipation to bear our judgment in the days ahead. Judgment is coming. Jesus will be on that horse one day. That is our hope. But for today, this Palm Sunday, he comes in on a donkey to give us peace, a peace, church, that surpasses all understanding and this peace that will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. No matter how much understanding you get on this virus, church, no matter how much research you do or how much you watch on the news or reading the latest article, it will not give you the peace you were created for. In actuality, the more we immerse ourselves in the culture, the more we immerse ourselves in what the media is pushing out, it will actually produce and grow fear in us rather than a peace. Because no amount of understanding is going to give you the peace you really long for or that you were created for. But when the peace of Jesus rides in and takes control of your heart, it actually produces a confidence and a freedom that this world can't explain. So the peace you're looking for this morning is not an escape. It's not by numbing yourself or with substance or food or drink, but is, is allowing Jesus to restore that which is broken in us and that which is now being revealed here in this COVID-19 time. But when the peace of this donkey riding Jesus comes in, and takes, the, takes, takes control of our hearts, we see that the fruit is contentment and gratitude. So even in this time, what are some things you can be thankful for rather than complain about? One of the greatest tools uh, to fight fear is gratitude. What would it look like as a family if you were to huddle up with your kids and to, to, to jot down some things of praise to overwhelm the grumbling, the fact that you have a home and that you have internet and that you have AC, not that we've really needed that lately, but that you have heat and you have a yard you can go out in, that you have a block that you can take a walk in. What are some things that we can put down on paper that we are thankful for? Because I think we can easily confuse peace with comfort. And in order to experience the true peace Jesus provides, we must dethrone comfort from ruling our hearts and whatever we're using to get that comfort. Paul says that we are to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, literally to call the shots, to govern our hearts and our choices. One of the greatest pictures as I was reading this is that we see this peace not in the crowd or, or really with people, uh, but we see this in a donkey. Mark will actually say in his gospel uh, that this donkey was never ridden before. And so I grew up with some horses. I actually had uh, two donkeys myself, and my dad was uh, a horse trainer. Uh, and people would actually come in and they would drop off their horses uh, in order for uh, him to train the horse on, uh, on, on, on being able to be ridden. And so when I read this and I, I saw that 
comment in Mark, I, I began to think about really the miracle of this, that when you get on a Mustang or you get on a horse that hadn't been ridden, they're going to rear up. They're going to want to bite you. They're going to want to get you off their back. I have memories of my brother being in a round pen and, and being thrown off horses uh, and his head literally going through uh, the fence because of the intensity of an animal. But yet when Jesus gets on this donkey, we don't see this. And if you know anything about horses or donkeys, you know that they're very, uh, they're very skittish. And so when the people are literally waving things in front of them and they're shouting in this parade and this this donkey that's never been trained but yet is 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 peaceful why do i mention this because jesus invites us this morning to be broken to be dependent on him to be filled with his peace in a season where it is really easy to be spooked he invites us to come out from the walls of survival that we've built to protect ourselves so we can find our ultimate security in him. Church, look, look, your king, he's coming to you. He's available to you. Therefore, you can lay down your everything to find your everything in him. Look with me in verse 6, Matthew chapter 21. This is the point where I would look at you and say, are you still with me? Uh, and I can't see you now, but maybe you'll give a thumbs up or some type of uh, keep going, Pastor, um, as we get through this. But look at me in verse 6. The disciples went and did what Jesus had directed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and put on their cloaks, and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the ground, and, the other, uh, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And here Jesus receives this praise. He doesn't stop them because these things are true of him. I mean, the people are going nuts. They're excited. They're shouting these things. We see them shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. That's unique. There's only one that was going to come from David, according to 2 Samuel chapter 7. That this, this one coming from David would be the Messiah and would be the king of Israel. They're saying, this is him. They're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is Psalm 118. If you look at Psalm 118, this is like authority, king language, that they're saying, this is him. They're saying, Hosanna into the highest, which Hosanna, it, it literally means save us. Save us now, we pray. And they're saying these things, and they're laying down their cloaks are laying down their garments. And as I began to do a little bit of research on this, this is a very unique and, and special thing because in Old Testament history, there was a, a king named Jehu. And it says in 2 Kings chapter 9, it says, Thus saith the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. This is when Jehu was anointed king. And what did the people do? Verse 13, it says that, In haste, every man of them took his garment. So before... Palm Sunday, before they laid it down their garment, there's this guy named Jehu, and people are laying down their garments and putting it under him and under the bare steps, and they're blowing trumpets and saying, Jehu is king. And just to prepare the families that are doing the Bible reading plan, when you get to 2 Kings chapter 9, prepare yourselves a little bit. Because Jehu, if you know anything about him, he's a warrior. Like, he's a brother, like, you don't want to make eye contact with. Like, he, you don't want to mess with Jehu. Because when you see in 2 Kings chapter 9, he goes in and he does some work for the Lord. He brings some 
justice. So why do I tell you this? Why do I point you back to an Old Testament random chapter, which isn't random? What the people are doing is they're saying, we want Jehu. We're laying down our cloaks. We're doing these things because our king has come and he's about to wreck shop on Rome. We want the warrior king, but yet Jesus comes as the king of peace, not to take battle up against Rome, but take battle against our sin and death in Satan. He goes in and they're shouting and they get to the gates. I, I, I imagine they were uh, like anticipating one of the greatest like victory parties ever. Get out the silly string, get out the boom box, like let's celebrate. Man, Rome's about to be overthrown. Enough about how I guess I would party. Enough of that. Like this is about to go down. Let's celebrate. But yet Jesus doesn't do that. He actually, if you keep reading in the next section, he actually doesn't bring spiritual deliverance or physical deliverance. He actually goes into the temple. He does wreck shop in a sense. He flips tables because of the injustice of God's people. Because the people wanted physical deliverance without spiritual renewal. They wanted a kingdom for themselves and for their glory without the king in his glory. See, Jesus was up to something better than than our circumstance or what we can fabricate ourselves. No, Jesus was up to the spiritual renewal to offer us peace, but yet the people had this misguided expectation. And if we're not careful, we can too, because we know that they are saying Hosanna in this moment, but here in a few days, they're going to be saying, crucify him, crucify him. I think deep down, we can expect that God owes us a, a, a good life. But why would we expect that when Jesus himself didn't experience that, that good life? We can almost treat God like a, like a vending machine. I put in my money, I put in my time, I tune in to this live stream in order to get benefits from God. But God doesn't owe us anything. Yet being rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love, He graciously gifted us his son to give us himself. But we prefer to have God's gifts rather than God himself. We prefer that, we prefer what he could do rather than what he has already done and already provided. There's a guy named uh, Larry Crabb, and he wrote a book called Shattered Dreams, and he writes this. If we are satisfied with good health, let that sink in a little bit, If we are satisfied with good health, responsible children, enjoyable marriages, mm -hmm, close friendships, yes, sir, interesting jobs, we will never hunger for God's best. We will never worship. I've come to believe that only broken people truly worship. Unbroken people, happy folks, who enjoy their blessings more than the blesser. They say thanks to God the same way a shopper thanks a clerk at the grocery store. Because what we believe about God affects our worship of God. Look with me in verse 10. Matthew continues to write, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? Who is this guy? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. 
I mean, Jesus just got the red carpet treatment. He, like, if social media was existing at this point, Facebook and Instagram and, tw- and Twitter would be exploding. There'd be so many notifications on your phone, it would die because the battery life could not keep up with the, 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 the amount of, 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 of talk, and the amount of stirring that is now going on amongst millions of people. Because remember, it's Passover, and people are traveling from all over and, and to go into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And so amongst the masses, amongst the walls, there's this echoing of, who is this guy? Who is this Jesus? The word uh, stirred up in the Bible, uh, it actually is really unique because uh, and elsewhere it's used for an earthquake. That the, the city was stirred up in such a way that, that literally it, 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 it resembled a natural disaster. Church, look at me. Just as that city was shaken and on edge, we today, 2,000 years later, we find our world is shaken, confronted with our mortality and the delusion of self-sufficiency. We are in uncertain times, but there is one who is certain. Our assurance is in the donkey-riding king who wrought this world with the love to be reckoned with. The one who shook the world so he could still our soul. The one who literally split history in half, B.C. to A.D., to part the waters of sin and bondage to give us peace. Are asking, who is this? There's people in our world right now who are asking, who is God? What's he up to? What's he doing? And those are great, great questions. And we have the opportunity to invite them to the truth, invite them to the rock. Because Jesus, in Matthew chapter 16, before any of this happened, he asked his, his disciples the same question. Who are people saying that I am? Some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, some say a prophet. And then Jesus looked down and said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter responded, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. The crowds were right in saying that he was a prophet, but he was much more. That their expectation and their entitlement that they had in their heart was off. And yet Peter's words kept coming to my mind that he is the Christ. He is the Psalm 2 victorious king. He is our rock in these times. So no no matter what the crowd is saying or what is being broadcasted on the news or on your social media or the trouble that we find ourselves in, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand all other ground is sinking sand. I say it again, all other ground is sinking sand. When darkness veils his lovely face, I'll rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy day, my anchor holds within the veil. On the Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. I'll close with one last question. Is who will you be on the other side of this? What will your kids remember when they tell their families about COVID-19? In a world of hate, will they continue to sing of his faithfulness? And faithfulness is possible, church, because our king is coming to you. Look, look up. In gratitude, 
and the grace that, that is made available to you now in this moment. He's faithful. He's a rock. He's unmoving in such a moving time. Let me pray. God, we're so grateful that you came. God, we're grateful that you're our king in these uncertain times. Thankful that you're our rock. Over and over in Scripture, we see that you're our security. So in the midst of fear, in the midst of the unknown, in the midst of anger, in the midst of frustration, I pray that you'd bring that peace that surpasses all understanding, God. We wouldn't look to it elsewhere. We were created for more. We're created for you. We love you. It's in your name I pray. Amen.